So it sounds from the singing that who is he in yonder stall is a new one to most of you. It asks the question, uh, of course, what is the identity of this little baby in the yonder stall? Before that we say, what child is this? Who is he? Whose son is he? Well, we see different answers to that in our passage before us this evening. We will answer that question as well as we'll just look at sonship more generally, familial relations more generally this evening. First of all, in verse 22 of Luke chapter 3, we hear a voice coming from heaven, obviously from God, speaking to Jesus. You are my beloved son. We recognize that he in yonder stall is the eternally begotten son of God. He is the divine, eternal son, begotten, not made, as the old creed puts it. Begotten, not created, as we sing in a versified form. He has always been. There was never a time when the Son of God was not. From eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always coexisted. Three persons, and yet one God forever. And the orthodox way of understanding the relations between the persons of the Trinity, well, at least some of us, I mean, we could spend a whole seminary course on the correct way of understanding these things, but some simple declarations we can make. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Father nor the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father nor the Son, and yet all of these are God. That the Son of God is eternally begotten or eternally generated of the Father. And that from the Father and the Son proceed the Holy Spirit. Obviously these are deep and profound mysteries. Things that we're not going to unfold and unpack exhaustively tonight. But we must recognize that He in yonder stall is not just some mere baby. We love babies. Everyone in here has a birthday, you know. And there was a day, therefore, when you were born. And people around you were happy. Your parents were happy. Your aunts and uncles probably. And grands and papas. And everyone was happy. But nobody celebrates your birthday. Around the world. Every single year. Alright? You are not that significant. Neither am I. Alright? The profundity of Jesus' birth is not simply that a human baby was born. As we will see later on, he was human and is human. But what we need to recognize is that he is very God of very God. 
As I always emphasize, I love, let all mortal flesh keep silence. We sing it every Christmas because it, it balances out the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. There is nothing little about the Lord Jesus. Now, there was, and so it's true to sing the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. He was a tiny little baby. But there is nothing little about the Lord Jesus now. And there, there was nothing little about the Lord Jesus quadrillions of years ago when in His pre-incarnate glory He dwelt with the Father and the Spirit in eternal bliss. Let all mortal flesh keep silence emphasizes the point that He in yonder stall is the divine Son. What child is this? This is the beloved Son of the Heavenly Father. This is the first type of sonship in our passage. And this is the first answer to the question, who is he in yonder soul? We see in verse 22 that he is the beloved Son of God. But we also see in our passage in verse 23 that Jesus is the son of Joseph. That little, that little bracket, as was supposed, doesn't negate the fact that Jesus is Joseph's son. What that little bracket does when it says, being the son, bracket, as was supposed, close bracket, of Joseph, what it does there is it emphasizes the point, which we know as Orthodox Christians, that it was not Joseph's sperm which fertilized the egg that Mary produced to create Jesus. That rather, Jesus was born of a virgin, having been overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, as the Gospel writers put it. What that little as was supposed does is it reminds us that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. But the very fact that the genealogy continues emphasizes the reality that Jesus was Joseph's son. If Jesus was not Joseph's son, the genealogy which follows would be utterly useless. Jesus was truly, really, Joseph's son. Even though he was not Joseph's biological son. Jesus was adopted from conception by Joseph. This is the second answer to the question, who is he in yonder stall? What, what child is this? Joseph's son. That's as true and as biblical an answer as Jesus is the eternal Son of God. That's also the second type of sonship we see in our passage. So Jesus is the Son of God and He is the Son of Joseph. The third type of sonship that we see in our passage, and we're moving on from talking about Jesus specifically here, but we're just looking at types of sonship. 
The third type of sonship that we see, or familial relations that we see in our passage, is that Joseph is the son of Heli. Verse 23. Joseph, the son of Heli. Well, if we go over to Matthew, chapter 1, says this. In Matthew 1 and verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Well, which is it? Was it Jacob or was it Heli? The answer to this question that, that makes the most sense of the discrepancies in the genealogy, the names, by the way, it's not just it's just it's not just two, it's not just Jacob and Heli that are in variation. As if maybe his maybe his like his middle name was Heli. And his first name was Jacob, and so they're both true. But the names of the grandfather and the great-grandfather and so on and so forth are the same in Matthew and Luke. That's not the case. They differ all the way back to David. So we can't just say that it was the same guy but known by different names. The genealogies are fundamentally different back to David. So what is the answer to this question? The answer to this question is this. Matthew is giving the biological genealogy of, Je of Joseph and Luke is giving the biological genealogy of Mary. Now, here's a question for you. Why then does it say Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age? Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, if I'm telling you that Luke's genealogy is according to the genealogy of Mary, here's the answer. Heli only had daughters. And the way that genealogies work in those days in terms of legal lineage and inheritance rights and so on and so forth, was that if a man had only daughters, she would marry within her tribe, and then all the legal rights and inheritance and whatnot would pass to her husband. What this means is that Joseph was reckoned the son of Heli, even though he was not Heli's biological son. So what we have is another case of adoption. But this time it's basically adoption as an adult. Joseph is the son that Eli never had. But Joseph shows an interest in Mary. And Eli gives Mary his daughter to Joseph in marriage. And takes Joseph as his own legal son. With all of the rights and privileges of a son, to be reckoned as Heli's son. And it was legitimate back in those days for a genealogy then to be counted this way. Joseph could truly say, Heli is my father from that point forward. The fourth type of sonship that we see in our passage is the one we often think of when we think of fathers and sons. If we skip all the way down to 38, we see the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. 
Well, Seth was Adam's natural, biological son. We normally think of that, and we do see that in this passage, right? That's what we normally think of when we think of fathers and sons. So I won't belabor that point. Now, now fifth, the next type of sonship that we see in our passage is Adam, the son of God. Now, was Adam the son of God in the sense that Seth was the son of Adam? No. He was not naturally, biologically born of God. Was he adopted as an adult? As Joseph was adopted by Eli as an adult? No. Was he adopted at birth the way that Jesus was adopted at birth by Joseph? No. Was he the eternally begotten son the way that Jesus is the eternally begotten son? No. So this is again a distinct type of sonship. Let me, let me summarize and point out to you then that we see five different types of sonship in this passage. There is eternal generation where the son has no beginning but is eternally begotten of the father. And this is uniquely the relationship of Jesus to his heavenly father. No one else is eternally generated. But that is a legitimate type of sonship. Secondly, there is adoption at conception. Where from the moment that a child is conceived, someone takes him or her as their own child. Then there is adoption as an adult, as was the case with Joseph and Heli, his father-in-law. Then there is natural, temporal generation, not eternal generation, not eternally begotten, but temporally begotten. In other words, in time, begotten, the way that Seth was in time, begotten. Of Adam. And then finally and fifthly, there is supernatural temporal generation. I say supernatural to contrast it with natural generation, which happens both through a sperm and an egg. It is supernatural when, when God makes Adam, he generates him, but not in the natural method, in a supernatural method. And he doesn't eternally generate him as he eternally generated Jesus. Rather, he temporally generates him. There was a time when Adam was not, and now he is. What I want you to see is that there are five different ways of becoming someone's son in this passage. Five. Five different ways of being made family to someone else. If I had asked you before I read for that, how many ways can you have a son? Or how many, how many ways can you become a son? You would probably say one or two. Depending on whether you have ever considered adoption as a real way of making a family. We all know the way of making a son that Adam and Eve came together and knew one another, as the Bible says, and Seth was born. 
We all know that. Like, if you thought about it carefully, you should realize that adoption is also a very legitimate way of making a family. But you probably would have stopped that too. Look at all these ways. Let's make some applications here from these, this very basic observation. And we'll start with, as respects Jesus, by way of application, and we'll move to as respects us. First of all, Jesus is the Son of God. After he was adopted by Joseph, he was still the Son of God. Look in Luke chapter 3, verse 22. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. He did not cease being the Son of God when he became the Son of Joseph. What this means is that the incarnation was not a change from one thing to another. It wasn't as if Jesus morphed from being the Son of God to becoming a mere man like the rest of us. He didn't stop become he didn't stop being what he was. The incarnation was not a calculation of subtraction, but addition, if we can put it that way. John Stott says, remaining what he was, he became that which he was not. Which captures something of the, the profundity and the difficulty of understanding this. Jesus, according to his divine nature. Let me say this. The Son of God, according to his divine nature has all of the properties and attributes of divinity. Including eternality and immutability, which means he does not change. Jesus is the name that we give to the Son of God. Let me, let me rephrase that. Jesus is the name that God instructed Joseph and Mary to call their baby, who was the Son of God, but took to himself a human nature in that place at that time. Listen carefully when I say this. There was never a time when the Son of God was not but there was a time when Jesus of Nazareth was not. Right? There was a time before that baby was conceived in Mary's womb. There was a time when the eternal Son of God had not taken to himself a human nature. When Jesus was born, he was still the eternal changeless one. And he had taken to himself a human nature, but he remained what he was. We have to remember this when we think about the incarnation. 
It is not a calculation of subtraction. This is why I love the song, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. It captures the glory of Jesus as the eternal one. But listen, Jesus is really and truly the son of Joseph and Mary. And by extension, because he is the son of Joseph and Mary, he is the son, so to speak, the the great, 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 great grandson, the descendant of David, Abraham, Eve. He is really and truly human. Which makes him a suitable covenant head. Someone that God can enter into covenant with on behalf of other humans. To act as a representative on behalf of other humans. Romans 5 speaks to this most directly. Verses 12 to 21. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sin. This is describing the covenantal relationship between God and Adam. And the way that Adam's sin affected everyone because everyone was considered as being in Adam. And so when Adam sinned, all sinned. And so it says, death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. But the very fact that people died showed that sin was counted. Right? Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So again, we see that Jesus juxtaposed with Adam. Adam acted as the one for the many. And as the one man acted for the many, resulting in condemnation, so one man will act for the many with respect to justification. Verse 16. For because, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And he, and he goes on from there. My point is simply to say that Jesus... Being truly the son of Joseph and the son of Mary and the son all the way back to being the son of Adam was truly human and was therefore a suitable human representative of other humans with whom God could enter into a covenantal relationship such that he could act as one man on behalf of the many. It also means because he was human that he was an appropriate substitute for human sinners. As I mentioned this morning, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Why? 
Because they're not human. And it would not be just and right for God to visit human sin upon a bull or a goat and count it as if justice had been done. And yet Jesus, as human, suffered for human sin. So the humanity of Jesus is real. His sonship, with respect to other humans, is real. Making him a suitable covenant head and a suitable substitute for human sinners. And this humanness, and and particularly his lineage, given to us in Matthew and in, in Luke, both, however we trace it, through Matthew or through Luke, both render him legitimately Eve's offspring, Abraham's offspring, and David's offspring. What this means is that God has been faithful to what He promised when He spoke to that serpent in Genesis chapter 3. He said that one of Eve's descendants would crush his head. That God has been faithful when he, to do what He promised to Abraham and bless all of the nations of the earth through His offspring. Genesis 22:18. God has been faithful to do what He promised to David to do in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to set his son on his throne forever. The descendancy of Jesus from Eve and from Abraham and from David is real, which means God has been faithful to his promises. Because all of this is true about Jesus and because He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. Because He is the Son of the Heavenly Father and the Son of Joseph, His earthly father. Because He is the Son of Adam. Because He is the Son of Abraham. Because He is the Son of David. Because God is, has set Him up then as a covenant head. Because God has counted Him as a suitable substitute. Because God has fulfilled His promises that He has made to the human race in and through Jesus Christ. Because all of this is real and true and legitimate and not just a appearance of being human. Because He did not change and stop being God when He took on flesh. Because He is simultaneously the Son of God and the Son of Man, the Son of Adam, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, the Son of Joseph. Because all of this is true and real, through Jesus, we may become children of God. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. You've heard me quote it many a time. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And Hebrews chapter 2, verse 20 says that through Jesus, God is bringing many sons to glory. We may be adopted. We may be counted as sons of God. C. 
C.S. Lewis put it memorably, the Son of God became a man so that men may become sons of God. And as we become sons of God, we become brothers and sisters to one another. If He is bringing many sons to glory, and you are one, and I am one, then what does that mean? It means we are brothers. Jesus Himself emphasized this point in the way He phrased His instructions to Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20 and verse 17. After he had risen, he said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. What this means is that through Jesus Christ, we may become children of God, which makes us brothers and sisters to one another. There are more ways to make a real family than just birth. More ways to make a real family than going down to the courthouse and signing some adoption papers. And what Jesus has done has made us a real family. We Christians are real family. What we normally think of as our families, that is maybe our biological parents or our adoptive parents and our siblings, these are also real. It's not either or, it's both and. Those types of families that we typically think of as real families are real families. And also, so is our Christian family. The reality is, we see before us in Luke chapter 3, there are many real ways to make a family. And the Bible tells us that God really has made us His family in and through Jesus Christ. God is our Father. Jesus is our brother. And we are brothers and sisters of one another. This is just as real, just as real as any other family relationship that you have.